Hollywood. Uh, my name is Sonny Bunch. I'm the culture editor at The Bulwark. I'm very, very pleased to be joined today by David Thompson. Uh, David Thompson is the author of more than 25 books, including the bio Biographical Dictionary of Film, uh, Biographies of Orson Welles and David Oselznik, uh, and the pioneering novel Suspects, which was peopled with characters from film. Uh, he lives in San Francisco. Uh, he's, he's written a, a ton of books, and I, I have enjoyed every one that I have read. Uh, there was a, a book about Psycho uh, that is must-reading if you want to understand the, the kind of moment of film when Psycho was released. There was uh, uh, "Have You Seen," which is one of the, uh, which is it, it, it's a fantastic introduction to film criticism in that you can flip to any page and have a very interesting little read about a movie you have or have not seen. Uh, I, I strongly recommend picking it up if you are into the world of film criticism. Mr. Thompson, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I wanted to talk about uh, your your new book, "A Light in the Dark: A History of Movie Directors," uh, which. Is, uh, which is very interesting to me because it feels like an effort to rejigger how we understand the evolution of director as a position. Um, to, to uh, I, I don't want to say move away from the auteur theory exactly, but to understand the economic impulses uh, that kind of led to the idea of the director as the great man, the, the, the focus of attention. Um, how, did you, how, how, did you, well, how did you come up with the, the, the book? What was, the, what was your thought process here? Well, you put your finger on it, really, because I have found in the last, I don't know, 15 years, let's say, that I've spent more and more of my time watching long-form series on my television screen, or what I still call my TV screen. And these are household name series, like The Wire, The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, Babylon Berlin, many of them, many more that are not very good. But when these series are good, I felt they were at least as good, if not better, than most of the films I was being asked to see in theaters. And yet, I didn't know who had directed the episodes. I watched them all. I sort of read the credits, but, you know, no one really reads the credits these days. And if you were to say to me who directed Breaking Bad, I would have to say, well, really, Vince Gilligan directed it because he was the creative figure behind it, and he came to it essentially as a writer. He organized a group of writers. He hired directors. The directors were absolutely competent but sort of impersonal. Uh, Brian Cranston meant more than the directors. And this was a throwback to the old days of movies when in Hollywood, directors were expected to be professional managerial figures. Obviously, they had great talent. Many of them were very good with actors, but they had not conceived the picture. That came from the studio system as a whole. And they just carried out the job of directing. And actually, those people did a pretty damn good job over the decades. And, you know, a lot of the major entertainments we think of, like Casablanca, mm -hmm. Michael Curtiz directed it. He directed 
a hundred or more films, many of them as entertaining as Casablanca, but you still don't really know who Michael Curtiz was in the way that, say, you know who Ingmar Bergman was, you know who Scorsese is. These people have a personal identity because they came to power in the age of the auteur theory when we, as audiences, as academics or whatever, we sort of worship the director. And it, it was a way of turning the movies into a legitimate art form to say, look, these people, these artists made the films. Whereas very often films owe a great deal to the studio system or the system in which they were made and to a whole host of people who collaborated with the director. So that was the sort of the starting principle to this book. And what it meant was really a, an attempt to define the different degrees of authority and effectiveness directors have had in different systems. And, and just to say that we look, it looks as if we're into an age now where great genius directors are harder to find, but good professional directors are bringing us a lot of the things that mean the most to us. Mm -hmm. Do you think we are entering uh, an age of kind of the cult of the showrunner like we had in the 60s with the auteur theory uh, and, and that sort of thing? I mean, you know, you mentioned Vince Gilligan, but, uh, you know, Sean Ryan, right, is getting uh, an, an enormous amounts of money. Uh, all, all these all these uh, all these showrunners are getting huge you know paychecks from Netflix to come over there and make these long form series. Uh, I, do you think that the the that resonates with critics and uh, audiences the same way? No, I think that critics and audiences are catching up with it rather slowly. Uh, and I think what's happened is that if you say, if you take an ordinary person who watched, say, The Sopranos, and you say, what was really the creative force in The Sopranos? They don't know that David Chase was the showrunner. Mm -hmm. They will tell you about Gandolfini and the other actors they fell in love with or in hate with, over a period of years. Brian Cranston in Breaking Bad in the same way. The actors in Mad Men. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, once upon a time, people went to the movies to see Joan Crawford, Edward G. Robinson. They went to see people. They did not go to see what a director was doing because they barely knew who the directors were let alone what directors did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it's still an area of mystery for a lot of people as to what's the difference between a producer and a director. Uh, and sometimes the differences are not very large. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I uh, in that question, I actually made a mistake. I mixed up my showrunners. It's not Sean Ryan. It was Ryan Murphy. This is this is the you know this is the world in which we live, in which they, <laughs> Ryan Murphy and Sean Ryan very different. Sean Ryan made The Shield and Terriers, two great shows, ones that I highly recommend uh, if people have you know some some time to kill. But Ryan Murphy very different, very more flamboyant. You know, he he uh, he yeah. made the Hollywood series and Nip Tuck and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, but I mean, I, I you know it's uh, one th there's there's a great line in your book. Uh, calling back to 2001 a space odyssey um 
where where you're you're talking about the apes coming along the monolith, and there's something reassuring about this godlike creation. It's it's I believe the line was it's more frightening if there's no one running the show, uh, and. The, is 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 the is the whole creation of the director just an organizing principle for viewers and critics alike? I mean, is it just shorthand? Is it a cheat? Um, I th well, I think it is that, but I think it has a great deal to do with our emotional security. I mean, take the screens to a different place. If you're going to watch Fox or MSNBC tonight. You'll say you're going to watch Rachel or you're going to watch Hannity. You'll identify the show mm -hmm. in terms of those personalities. And, you know, we've come to love them, hate them, whatever. But they are the show. Well, they will tell you that they're a part of the show. Uh, and they're only there because people that vaguely you would call producers or the factory behind them have picked them and encouraged them, paid them, and given them the space to be that version of themselves that we like. And, you know, Rachel Maddow looks like, sounds like the news, but she was someone assigned to it. And she has obviously grown in the task. You could say the same about Tucker Carlson. Sean Hannity, and I'm not putting any value system on either of them, but we watch television still in the way that long ago now people watched Cronkite, David Brinkley, and it was a way in which you could turn on the TV at a certain time every night, and even if the news was terrible, even if the news was Vietnam news, and you could feel that Walter Cronkite was losing faith in the American enterprise of being in Vietnam. Still, television was an essential link between us in our homes in the dark and the, the notion, the hope, that the world is being organized and run. So there is a tremendous basic security system built into TV. And uh, it simply... The fact that a face on a screen, if you watch it three or four nights in a row, becomes a face you begin to think you know and trust or mm -hmm. mistrust, mm -hmm. but, but you make a relationship with them. You're making a relationship with the medium, which is really a new version of picking up a newspaper and believing what it tells you, that it, it's going to print all the news that is fit to print which, if you think about it, is an absurd acclaim. Mm -hmm. It's doing its best to do those things, you can say. Does that answer? Yo. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, one of one of the kind of running threads in your in in this book is one that I I have spent a lot of time thinking about these last few years, and that is, you know, the the whole art versus artist depiction endorsement debate. There, there, we you talk a little bit about you know uh, Woody Allen and and some of these other guys, and I one thing that I feel like I'm picking up on your uh, in your writing, and I just want to was hoping you might tease out a little bit is is trying to draw a difference between reverence for the artist and 
understanding when the art is problematic. So you, you mentioned all that jazz and uh, Birth of a Nation, for instance. And, and those are... And you mentioned them more negatively, I would say, than uh, like Ingmar Bergman or Woody Allen, the person, as opposed to the filmmaker. How do you approach this as a writer, as a as a moral person? I mean, it's it's a it's a tricky thing. Well, I would say, first of all, that anyone who has been attentive to the film business and has met a lot of directors has seen some films being shot, that kind of thing. You know, you learn that to be a film director, you have to be selfish, tough, tireless, not exactly honest, uh, and absolutely determined to have your way. Uh, making a film is so complicated, so exhausting, that the only chance you have of making a film remotely close to your vision is to be somewhere between a charmer and a gangster. Very important figures in the history of American movies. <laughs> and most directors are like that. And... If you're close to directors, you, you, you recognize the compromises they are making. You recognize, in many cases, not all, how their private life, their personal life, gets sacrificed. How the people in their private life can get sacrificed. Uh, you need intense ambition, energy, and will. And, you know, those things can turn ugly quite quickly. So I think it's absurd to suppose that film directors are or ought to be saints. Um, we're living more and more with test cases like Woody Allen of um, how do we reconcile ourselves to work that very recently we loved Mm -hmm. because of doubts we have entertained about the man in his personal life. I don't think you can separate the two, and I think mm -hmm. it's up to us individually what judgment we make. If you don't want to go and see any more Woody Allen films, okay. Um, I think the most interesting thing a, cr a critic can do is to say, you know... Some of the qualities that we are disliking about Woody Allen may have been in his work all along, because he's a serious artist. Mm -hmm. He's delivering himself. And I don't think the self was always as lovable as we try to think it was. And I think, you, I think as a critic, you have to deal with those things. Um, in the end, for me... The work remains paramount, and perhaps I'm being um, protective in thinking that. Mm -hmm. You know, fashion has a lot to do with it. There was a period, the last, let's say, the last 30 years of his life, when Ingmar Bergman was widely hailed as a genius and maybe the great filmmaker of his time. Um, we didn't know very much about him as a person because... 
he lived in Sweden, which was a different, rather isolated culture. He didn't really leave Sweden very much. What we are learning and what we can find now in the testimony of people who knew him was that he was a pretty ugly guy. He mm-hmm. dealt with women, for instance, very, very badly, and he deals with women on screen with a tenderness that is unique. Um, those two things seem at odds. Uh, I think they're not. They're different sides of the same personality. And it, 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 it's a little like a doctor who is a saint to his patients, but seems a rather neglectful figure to his own children, to his own mm-hmm. family. Not an uncommon report from people who are in the families of doctors. I think that artists are much like that. Artists probably are kinder to imaginary people than they are to real people. Now, that's a huge issue and and Mm -hmm. very problematic. And I don't think we can run away from it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I mean, it it is hard to... Hard to reconcile those things. I do. You, do you think that one of the uh, advantages of TV being more of a writer's medium than a, a director's medium is to limit some of that, or or does it just kind of shift to the showrunner? I mean, I, I frankly, I you don't hear as many stories like this about showrunners, which is interesting considering how much more time they spend with actors and 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 that sort of thing. Well, maybe showrunners are nicer people. I don't know. <laughs> um, Maybe it's just that we are not yet accustomed to focusing the same sort of scrutiny on them that filmmakers get. I mean, filmmakers are still major figures in the culture in a way that's not really represented by how many people see their films. Fewer and fewer people go to see their films. When the Oscars are awarded in a few weeks' time, the TV audience at home will have seen very few of those films, and it remains to be seen how many of them turn up for the show. Um, Showrunners are mysterious figures. If I say showrunner to someone in the supermarket, they're not necessarily going to know what a showrunner is. It's a fairly recent term, you know. Sure. And, um, I mean, you're in the newspaper business. You know that there are people in your world people who mean a great deal to you, people you have to obey and satisfy to some extent, they're crucial people Mm -hmm. in the making of the paper and thus in the making of the news, and we don't know who they are. No, no, totally. That's totally true. Totally true. Uh, Let's let's move on just a little bit. I... uh... Uh, one, one thing I, I really kind of liked and thought about a lot as as I was kind of finishing up the book was you have a line uh, in here about uh, having a panth- a critic needs to have a pantheon of directors we don't like in addition to the ones we do like. And, you know, I, like everybody, nobody wants to prejudge a movie before it comes out. Um, but it is it is important to understand for the for the critic but also for the reader frankly uh how how you feel about that director's work going into a picture right i mean i you, you i was i was worried I, I bring this up because i was worried when you were talking about terrence malick that you were going to dismiss days of uh, not days of heaven um 
uh, A Hidden Life, which I think is one of the masterpieces of the last 10 years. I Certainly agree with you, totally. The, the Trump era. And, and, then you, and then you agreed with me. I was like, oh, go, phew. Um, I'm not wrong. Uh, you know, but, but I, I, I'm curious how you, how you balance that as a writer and as a thinker uh, and how, how you think readers of critics need to, need to understand that fact as well. Well, one of the great fallacies in the auteur theory was that once you had identified who the auteurs were, you sort of made the assumption, and many critics actually stated, that that director cannot make a bad film because they are saved, they are in the pantheon, and uh, they are auteurs, they are great figures. I think that's absurd. I think making a film is so complicated that it's very easy to make a bad film. And having great talent will not necessarily defend you, protect you against all the problems. Um, I think, therefore, that when you're a critic and you're going to see movies, you have a duty to the public and to the filmmakers to say, well, every time I see a Hitchcock film, let's say, I start again. I'm regarding it as a fresh film. Now, obviously, once I get into it, I'm going to see so many things that are Hitchcock sure. style and tricks. But Hitchcock, for instance, in my money, made some great films and made some very poor films. I don't blame him for that. I don't think he was a saint because he made great films. I think he was a complicated, troubled person. And the more we know about him, the more that comes out. But you have to keep, in my opinion, uh, that feeling of seeing every film as if it was the first film the director had made and really making an honest accounting of what you feel as you're watching the film. I think that's what you have to do. And um, there are critics, some critics, who are so much in allegiance to certain directors that you can't really trust their estimate anymore because you know in advance that it's going to be so favorable or so unfavorable. Malik is a very interesting case in point. He, be, he began his career with what may still be his best film, Badlands. And he made a couple of films and then he sort of stopped. And then he came back into a period where, in my opinion, he made uh, a lot of very pretentious, not very good films. And I say in the book that, that I had sort of, I, I hadn't given up on him because I knew he was a great talent, but I felt he was in a bad situation in terms of making films. And then A Hidden Life came out and a friend said, have you seen A Hidden Life yet? And I said, well, no, I'm a, I've sort of, put it off. I'm a little wary. And he said, you, you should go see it. He didn't tell me what he felt about it, but just said, go see it. And I went to see it. And I keep seeing it because I agree with you. I think it's one of the masterpieces of, of the modern era. And all that shows is that my opinion is unreliable. And every reader of a critic should know that. But also that directors have ups and downs. And uh, I don't know him personally. I don't know what goes into the making of his films, but it seemed to me with A Hidden Life that there was an urgency, a moral sensibility 
that had not been there for a long time. And I, I was delighted. Now, his next film, who knows? When I go see it, I've got to get myself in the mindset that says, this is the yeah. first film he's ever made. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Stephen Frears, uh, who, who gets a chapter in this book, uh, and I think is underappreciated by modern audiences who probably know him mostly from The Queen, um, uh, even though The Hit has a lovely criterion. I, you're, you're, you're a little down on The Hit in the in the book, I think, but it, it has a lovely criterion collection out if people want to go check that out. I, 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 want, to, I want to ask you about him because he, he feels like the uh, exemplar of a... Uh, of a of a not showy director, if that makes sense. If he's totally. he's not a, he's not a, he's not out there, you know, doing twenty minute long takes. He's you know, it's it's we're telling the story here, and we're getting it done. Well, you've you've named the reasons why I put him in in the book uh, because I regard him as an ideal professional director who comes to every project with an open mind and says really. If I can get a good script, and he doesn't write the script himself, although he talks to the writers a lot, if I can get a good script, it's a good story, and if I can cast it right the way I would like to, and I can get someone to put up the money, not a lot of money because he's not an extravagant director, but if they'll put up enough money, then there's, then there's a chance that I can make a pretty good film. And over a period of oh, nearly five decades now, because he's nearly 80, um, he has steadily produced work, none of it dull, some of it ex extraordinary. And at the same time, he is absolutely self-effacing. He doesn't like talking about himself. He doesn't like making big claims for the films he makes. He's a very modest, amiable man, or at least that is the, the affect he gives off to the world. And as I've indicated before, I like that kind of professionalism in directing. And, um, you know, you can find it in the history of Hollywood. Directors like Michael Curtiz, William Wyler, not really strong personal forces, but very accomplished, reliable entertainers in a field where it's very difficult simply to make one film. And, you know, Frears, I think, will go on doing that until he drops. And um, I admire his attitude to what he does. I sometimes find the attitude to the contrary, which is of individuals drawing deep breaths about their importance and making profound statements uh, as if they were political leaders almost about how important their new film is. I'm not going to name names, but you could probably <laughs> fill in some of the blanks. I find that a little off-putting sometimes. Mm -hmm. and, and apart from anything, it, it overlooks or it tends to overlook how important people who wrote the music, edited the film, and even people who made the coffee can be mm -hmm. on a film. Uh, I've never met a, a good director who did not have an extremely valuable personal assistant that the world has never heard of. 
those people mm. don't even get credits on the films. And, yeah. and um, I just wanted to try and present a test case of that kind of approach to the job of making films. Uh, not to put you on the spot, but which Frears movie would you recommend uh, folks check out? Well, if, if there was I, one? I'm going to go on a limb. I do in the okay. book. The film I would recommend is one he doesn't like. It's, oh, it, that's right, yeah. it's Mary Riley, which okay. is a version of the Jekyll and Hyde story where Julia Roberts plays the housemaid in Dr. Jekyll's house. And that's a film that got trashed, generally, mm-hmm. by its reviewers. I think it's an extraordinary film. Uh, beyond that, I would say The Grifters, which I like very much indeed. Obviously, The Queen. Uh, some of the things he made for television when he was just starting out, which you can search out. It's, it's, it's a very rich filmography because he's worked in lots of different forms and there's a great deal to be found there. So I would say find out everything he made, get a, a book that, ha- that is a list of the films, go to Wikipedia and just start edging around. And um, I think you'll find a treasury of modest delights. Mm. Uh, that is a, that's a fantastic way of putting it. Uh, you know, we, we started talking a little bit uh, at, the, at the beginning of the show about the kind of economic history of the creation of the director. Um, and I, I want to come back to that a little bit just because, uh, you know, right now, uh, you, 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 I'm paraphrasing here, but in, in the book you mentioned the, the idea of the directors kind of being swept away by CGI and, and you know, ideas of correctness is, what, is the word that you use. Um, and I, what's, what, what is interesting to me is that even in these big Marvel movies, even in these massive Marvel movies, right, Marvel goes out of their way to hire name indie directors. For instance, Chloe Zhao is, has one coming out at the end of the year uh, who directed No Man Land and is, is, is very much uh, a favorite to, to win, or at least at the, at the top uh, of the, the Oscars list this year. Um, uh, Ryan Coogler, who uh, you know, went from Fruitvale Station to Black Panther, uh, you, you, see this, you see this kind of over and over again. And it, it, I have always been fascinated by it because it seems that Marvel movies don't actually want to have any sort of style to them. They, they have a house style that works for, for what they're doing, which, again, are basically long TV shows. I mean, you, we talk about showrunners. Kevin Feige is often considered you know, as, as a showrunner for the Marvel Universe, um, the producer of those films. Uh, but, but, you know, are we, are, are we looking at a, a moment here where the big movies, you know, your, your Michael Bay's and that type of figure, uh, even your Christopher Nolan's and your Quentin Tarantino's are going to go by the wayside and it's just going to be these kind of, you know, names that people don't know as, as the, the, the big forces in filmmaking. Well, You've touched on so many things there. Um, <laughs> Sorry. No, no, Sorry. no. It's like no, three questions. No, <laughs> uh, um, I mean, I think it's an enormous test for us and for her to see what Chloe Zhao will do when she's put in the cockpit of a major entertainment. Um, I have loved her work. I particularly love The Rider. Uh, she may well get best director this year. Um, I think she's the person I have seen in those films is 
a small director. I don't mean small in a bad way, but she likes small, true stories about the kind of people who don't always get into movies, almost failures in the American term of success and failure, and she has a tenderness for them and, and an interest in where they live. She makes films about people who do not live in the places where films normally take place. And I really wonder and tremble a little bit as to the test she faces in doing one of these epic special effects extravaganzas. Um, I, I really look forward to seeing the film, but I think it's going to be a very complicated test. You know, it, it's that matter of what you take into the film in your head and what you actually right. see on the screen and can you reconcile the two. Um, I do think that we're at the, in the early stage of an era where a lot of the films we go to see are not made by established white guys. And that really was the basis of the auteur theory. They're going to be made by people of color. They're going to be made by women. They're going to be made by people who come from overseas. Or They are not simply American, but they're making American films. And the attraction to the industry of people like that is that you can probably get them cheaper. It's, it's sort of rather like the NFL draft. You love a draft because you can hire a player who's got great sure. talent and you don't have to pay him too much for those first years. Yeah. Uh, the auteur theory led to very, very big uh, fees for directing. The business would love to bring that down. So, yeah. you know, in a way that entirely commercial instinct meshes with the feeling that we want to hear new voices. We want to hear people who are not celebrities, who are not glamorous, uh, making films. Uh, and that's a big part of the attraction, I think, of what's going on at the moment. Uh, I think it's going to build more and more. And of course, the technology helps it because, okay, you can go to Marvel and make one of these huge films for $150 million, mm -hmm. but... You could make a film on your iPhone. It, 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 the practice of making a movie has come within the reach of virtually everyone. It's come within the reach of your own kids and grandkids. And that's a wonderful thing. And it means, I think, that we're going to see more and more strange films. Not, not strange in their content, but in their format. They're going to be on screens we may not have imagined yet. They're going to look different. They're not going to look polished and uh, romantic in the way that Holly film, Hollywood films always used to. And I, I love that. I welcome it. And I think that it's going to change or help change the feeling we have for directors. I think that more actors want to become directors. Uh, they've always had that urge. Uh, because mm. often they feel their performances have been spoiled, messed around right. by the directors. So, you know, they want to make films too. Um, in a way, everybody wants to make a film now. And that's a reflection of our 
urge to make ourselves more equal, more democratic. It's a good thing. The most, the most important film America has had in, say, the last few months is the collective coverage of January the 6th. That's what we watch over and over again. Now, yeah. that was not shot purposefully and deliberately. It was not made to be beautiful, but it is an extraordinary portrait of ourselves, and we sort of can't take our eyes off it. It's not directed, but it's there, and, and that's always been an important part of films. Yeah. Uh, I... Uh, I, I like to end every interview with the, with a question uh, that that you you may answer you may not no no pressure but uh, if what what should I have mentioned in this interview what should I have asked you is there anything I did not discuss that you you really wanted to talk about or, or oh highlight? what a great question um, I, uh, no I mean I, I think you were well prepared and and, and well covered um, I mean the only thing I think that we haven't touched upon is really what prompts me to do what I do, which is something that began at the age of four when I went into the dark taken by my parents and I saw something on screen that was so lifelike, it terrified me. And yet at the same time, even at four, I knew it was fake. It had been done somehow. When I saw Olivier's film of Henry V, which is like the first film I ever saw. I knew people didn't wear armor in the way they do in Henry V. I knew they didn't talk in the way Shakespeare allowed them to. But it was so real that when I saw page boys, English page boys burning when the French burnt the English camp, I broke down in tears and I had to be taken out of the theater. And in the lobby, as my father tried to comfort me and reassure me, I said, even though it had terrified me, oh, we've got to go back. We've got to go back and see the rest of the story. That sort of, that actual feeling of what it's like to watch a movie and to be moved by it. Uh, I'm a lot older than I was when I saw Henry V, but I, it still gets me. Uh, and I still feel an incredible thrill when that happens. Uh, you see a film like Sound of Metal, which came to me as a complete surprise, and you just are amazed at the exposure you're getting to this life of this tortured drummer. And, and that's why I go back to the dark all the time. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, the author's name is David Thompson. The book is A Light in the Dark, A History of Movie Directors. I, I strongly recommend picking it up if you are looking for uh, a, a kind of interesting uh, take on the history of directors. And as a bonus, I, I didn't mention this, but there is a there's a whole chapter at the end on sources and resources filled with books. So if you are... Uh, if you are looking to expand your base of knowledge about the the world of films, that is a that's basically a crash crash course for you. You you'll go broke on Amazon. Um, so uh, and thank you very much for being on the show. Appreciate thank you it. very uh, much. I enjoyed it very much. <laughs> Great, thank you. Uh, we will be back next week with an, uh, another episode.